Heavenly Father, uh, it is an amazing thing, like that song says, that our sin, not in part, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. Praise God for those words being true. That every, every sin and injustice has received due penalty for God's people in his precious son. That is an amazing thought. And now we're forgiven. Father, as we go into your word, may you, by your spirit, open our eyes. Open my eyes to see what I need to say. Open all of our eyes to receive what we need to receive from you, not as receiving from a man, but receiving from the very words of the living God. We ask this trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. So last week, if you were with us, and if you weren't, you're about to get a recap, um, we began uh, our journey into John 7. And uh, one of the things I mentioned up front about John 7 <clears throat> is that all 52 verses of this chapter are deeply connected. And I gave you homework. I, I just want to see by a show of hands who actually did this. I asked you to go home and to read John 7 from front to back. Who did it? All right, so I'm re-asking it again this week, reminding you. Um, and the reason why is this. I, I want you to get in, your, in, in the bloodstream of your soul the events and what Jesus says in this chapter. It is important to me that you see it. And like I said last week, it's so holistic, it's so interconnected and woven together that it is a danger for me to parse it out into segments that are consumable in terms of sermons. So before we begin, I just want to give you a brief summary of what we saw at the beginning of chapter 7. Chapter 7 begins with a, a note from John saying that Jesus had refused, presumably since chapter 5, to return to Judea because the Jewish leaders there were seeking to kill him. They wanted him dead. Uh, he, they they wanted him dead because he happened to, to heal a man, this is what happened in John 5, in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And uh, so Jesus was staying in Galilee. He wasn't going into Judea. Galilee's north of Judea. Judea's around Jerusalem. But now, as John tells us at the beginning of this chapter, it's the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths is this feast where all of the nation of Israel celebrate it by doing a number of things, but one of them is that the males in Israel were required to go, to, go before God, go to Jerusalem, and uh, appear before him with what God had given them. And the, the, the feast itself was really celebrating how God had been faithful to Israel during their travel, during their journey from Egypt, where they were enslaved, into the promised land where they would eventually call home. And Jesus' brothers, when this feast is is uh, basically uh, when the feast is about to happen <laughs> and it's approaching, his brothers come to him, his biological siblings, so possibly brothers and sisters come to him and they're trying to incite him to go to Judea to show his works, his miracles, the signs that he's doing. And he's been doing them in Galilee um, and they want him to go in Judea where the people are and uh, they don't want him to do that because they want people to become believers and followers of Jesus that trust in him as the Messiah. They want him to do, they actually don't even believe that he's the Messiah. 
They don't, they don't really even think that he's the one he claims to be. They are merely trying to, John tells us, exploit what their brother can do. They know he can do these things. If you can do these things, go where you will be, be seen, Jesus. And Jesus tells them, I'm not going yet. It's not my time, he says. It's not my time. This is a theme that resurfaces. We looked at it, focused in on it last week, but it resurfaces throughout uh, the Gospel of John. Jesus, however, does eventually go up to the feast. We saw he goes on his own terms. He goes privately. He goes in this humble, fearless obedience into Jerusalem in the middle of the reality that the Jewish leadership is still after him. They want him dead. Halfway through the feast, he begins to teach in the temple. The way he's teaching is of such a quality and of such a degree that it really confuses the Jewish leadership. They don't understand what's going on here. Jesus is an uneducated Galilean man, not been formally trained, doesn't have a formal understanding of these things, yet he's talking about God like someone who has firsthand experience. And in response to their confusion, Jesus spots it, and I'm going to read the passage we, we looked at at the close of last week, verse 16 of John 7. My teaching is not my own, Jesus says, but his who sent me. In other words, it's God's. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. And we reflected on that passage, really we kind of zeroed in at the end uh, of last week on that passage, and how it embodies really the center of, of Christ's life, the glory of his Father. He loved that more than anything else in the world. And we even see it in here. He humbled himself in obedience repeatedly in this one scene, but throughout his entire life, making the glory of God, God's worth, his beauty, displayed as his central purpose in life. And this was just a glimpse, really, this brief sequence of events in uh, the beginning of John 7 was a glimpse of what, it, what Christ time means, the time and the hour that he would come to that John was talking about throughout his gospel when he would humble himself even to the point of death on a cross, all the while fervently, passionately, zealously pursuing the glory of his Father. This glimpse Jesus shows of humility, seeking the glory of God in his engagement with the Jewish leaders, happens in the middle of the Feast of Booths. We talked about last week, the word booth, tent, tabernacle. That word in Greek is the same word that John uses in John 1.14 when he says that Christ came to dwell with us. The incarnation of the eternal word who, who is, was God and was with God from all eternity comes into this world tabernacling with us after taking on flesh dwelling with us as a man so he could ultimately die for us for the sake of our sins, but ultimately for the glory of his Father. This is what we saw last week. And so if you have your Bibles, please take them. Turn with me to John 7, verse 19. Jesus here is going to seem to shift gears and change the subject a little bit, at least on the surface. Verse 19 Jesus is, is in the middle of his statement, so he has not stopped speaking here. We had to cut it off halfway last week, but 
This is the continuation. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So, I mean, here on the surface, if you're just reading through this, it does appear that Jesus changes his subject matter. And he shifts from talking about his pursuit of the glory of God and what he says and what he speaks and what he does to the whole issue that happened back in John 5. If you recall John 5 or with us when we looked at that, where he heals this man on the Sabbath and it ignites a firestorm of animosity toward him uh, from the Jewish leaders. They want him dead. And Jesus, <laughs> true, to, true to form, does not uh, ignore the conflict, but he engages it head on. Um, and he effectively asks here, back in Jerusalem, that why is it that though you have received the law of Moses, you refuse to obey it in seeking my death? That's what he's effectively saying here. Now, before we get uh, to their response, I want to make a few things really clear. I'm trying to get my papers down, but they don't want to stay on. There we go. Um, the first thing is this. It's clear from what we've read already, that these people do actually really want him dead. The Jewish leaders want to kill him. Everyone knows this. John's repeatedly said this. They were seeking to kill him. In fact, in verse 13, we read last week that they were so afraid that Judea, all the people of this this community were so afraid that they didn't say anything. They didn't want to associate themselves with Jesus, even if they didn't like him, by taking his name on their lips. This fear silenced all of Judea. No one's questioning that, even though this interaction happens with Jesus and the crowd. Secondly, Jesus here is revisiting the same point where their anger for him first began. I find that fascinating. Back in John 5, you remember Moses, they talked about Moses in the law, and we know Moses gave rules for the Sabbath. Moses gave rules against murder from God, but it were provided to the people of Israel from Moses. Jesus has talked about these things with them before. If you remember at the very end of chapter five, listen to what Jesus says to them at the very close of that chapter to to key off that argument and leave Judea for presumably months. He says this, verse 45 in chapter five, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is how he, he closed his conversation with them after healing that man. This, this kind of talking isn't going to make you friends, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> he's obviously not intent on pleasing their felt needs here. And it's the very reason this incident in John 5 is the very reason he wants him dead. He's, he's not afraid of him. Uh, and that's the main point I want to make here. Jesus isn't afraid of them. 
He's not. His allegiance isn't to their acceptance. It isn't to their approval. It isn't to their praise. He's not seeking those things. His allegiance is to the Father alone. God alone is who he pursues and seeks and obeys. Jesus is saying here at the end of chapter five, you don't believe Moses, why would I expect that you would believe me since he wrote of me? And then in chapter seven, he's saying, didn't Moses give you the law? Then why don't you keep it? Why are you seeking to kill me? And their response, in the face of, of a crystal clear evidence that, that the Jewish leaders are gonna kill him or want to kill him, everyone in Judea knows it. The crowd's response is, you have a demon. <laughs> That's the best we can come up with. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Now, this is ludicrous. Everyone in the crowd knows that this is ludicrous. Whoever said this or whoever group of people said this, it's, it's insane that they would say this. They're scared to even say his name. According to verse 13, Jesus doesn't address it at all. Instead, he goes back to the source of the problem and starts to unpack their hypocrisy. He says, he says that they marvel, they're shocked that he did this one work. Doesn't mean that they were amazed that he could do miracles. He did miracles all the time. That he did it on the Sabbath was shocking to them. That was shocking. They marvel at that one work. He healed a man on the Sabbath. That's wrong in their eyes. And yet they recognize that the Jewish rite of circumcision, given centuries before Moses, given to the fathers, that parenthetical in the ESV shows, given to the fathers, takes precedence over strict Sabbath observance. In other words, he says, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath in order to unite him to the people of God. You're willing to do that. It was given to Abraham. And therefore, in their eyes, circumcision takes precedence over strict Sabbath adherence. And Jesus doesn't seem to disagree with that at all. Not because the Sabbath is unimportant, but because the Sabbath isn't just some arbitrary law for mechanical obedience. The Sabbath was given to us by God for a specific reason. I mean, Jesus even says this in the synoptics. The Sabbath was for man, not for some weird orientation, like weird aspect of, of trying to follow rules mechanically. There was nothing like that. God gave it as a gift for man. Now that doesn't mean that it's optional. That doesn't mean that it, it's just a nice to have that we can throw in there when we want to or that we should treat it frivolous, frivolously, but it does mean that there are some things that are more important than strict Sabbath observance. And so Jesus' point here is that you're being hypocritical. They're angry because he healed a man on the Sabbath. He made a man's whole body well, which wasn't just a law that was given by Moses or an ordinance that was given to Abraham. What Jesus did in healing that man predates both of those events because it comes from the very beginning when God created man in his own image. This is more than a law about taking a day in the week to rest. This is more than a mark that will mark you on entrance into the people of Israel. This reality precedes, and in Jesus's view, if you look at his ministry, outweighs all of that. Man was made in the image of God. Therefore, our care, our love, our compassion for our fellow man isn't just a matter of horizontal application. It's related to the glory of God. God's glory is at stake in our caring for people who need healing, who need to be loved, who are in a physical or spiritual state that needs care. So Jesus is saying here effectively, you know, you have an issue with my healing, this man. 
this is why you want me dead. And yet you know there are, are certain things, you know and you live in a such, such a way that there are certain things that you know are more significant to my father than strictly observing the Sabbath. Namely, especially caring for the needs of broken people, loving people who need help. And then in verse 24, he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is his closing line. Now, what does he mean by this? Why, why say that there? What does it mean to make judgments by appearance in this specific instance? Well, <clears throat> in the case of their hypocrisy, um, it reveals that there is a superficial mechanical obedience at play. These folks don't really honor God. They don't really want to please him. They, they, they use the Sabbath to suppress other commandments because it's not actual obedience. It's not legitimate obedience. It's about being seen by others as holy. That's what judging by appearances is. And it reaches, if you think about this, and if you were here last week, you probably remember this. It reaches back to really last week and the source of Jesus' own brother's unbelief. They wanted, to heal, they wanted Jesus to heal people. That's not a bad thing. Jesus, go out, do some works, do some miracles in Judea. But they didn't want it for the sake of the people. John mentions nothing that they say about the sake of the people. They wanted him to make himself known to the world. They wanted popularity, which is why Jesus, when he gets to Jerusalem in verse 17, says, the only people who will know the truth of my teaching are those who share the heart of God, those whose will is God's will. They're the only ones who are going to recognize this. What I'm saying is, is coming from God. Those who are in other words, those who are judging by appearances, staying on the surface, are blind to my words right now. Their obedience is for show. It's not real. It doesn't arise from a desire to do God's will. It arises from a desire to be seen and to be loved by people and to be said about, oh, you're really religious, you're really good, you're following these rules. And this is precisely why Jesus engages this. Right in the, right in the, the face of the same Jewish leaders, who are looking for an opportunity to arrest him so they can nail him onto a tree. And this is a stunning response. And we can tell it's stunning even just by the way the crowd responds in verse 25. Look at this. It says, some of the people therefore said, therefore meaning take into account what Jesus said. This is their response. Is not this man, the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So this is their response to, to witnessing Jesus call out the hypocrisy of the people who are seeking to kill him. And right here we can see, again, John reminds us, the death threat against Jesus isn't, as the people in verse 20 were trying to insinuate, some kind of fabrication of a demon-addled mind. That's not what's going on here. This is real, and everyone knows it's real, and this is what makes Jesus so remarkable in this sequence. The authorities see him speak these things directly to them, and they say nothing. They say nothing to him. <clears throat> We're going to see that more often in this chapter. <laughs> and so they ask uh, this question, uh, could this really be the Christ? I mean, if, the, if they, he's saying these things in the, in the face of them, uh, and they don't arrest him, is it because they actually know that this is the Messiah? Is that what's going on? 
But right in the middle of that, they, they stop, and verse 27 introduces an argument against that possibility. They know that Jesus is from Galilee. Uh, he's Jesus of Nazareth. And so Nazareth is a city in Galilee. Uh, and, and so they ask, how could this be the Christ, the real Christ, when he appears? They say, no one's going to know where he comes from. So uh, there's this question. And it's interesting because if, if you look at like commentaries about this, it's a B. Just give me a second. I don't want to get stung in the middle because that'll, that'll, uh, that'll sidetrack us quite a bit. Um, if you look at the commentaries about this, it's interesting because commentaries say we don't really know where, he's, where they're pulling this from. Maybe it's because they thought he was divinely originating, that they thought there's, no, there's rabbis who taught this. There's no clear passage in Scripture that says that the origin of, of the Messiah would be completely a mystery. In fact, later on in this chapter, in verse 42, we can see that the crowd, in some respects, recognizes from Micah 5.2 that the Christ is to come from Bethlehem, the line of David. And so there's these two contradictory, there's actually a third one, in competing views about where the origin of the Messiah should be. And we'll see the third one at the end of this chapter is that they, they're like, there's, no, there's never been a prophet that's come from Galilee. No prophet has ever come from Galilee, uh, which is also untrue. The, the, so there's all these ideas that are swirling around Jerusalem right now, creating this vortex of tension and confusion about who Jesus is and about who the, what should mark the, the Messiah. And Jesus is right in the middle of it he speaks into this, but get this, not the way that you and I probably would. Not the way that I would. I'll speak from my own view. I would probably whip out my birth certificate and say, actually, I was born in Bethlehem, son of David. I am uh, the Christ. Uh, and I'd probably say, you know, I know you're going to complain about that galley bit, but if you remember Isaiah 9, 6, it speaks of a divine son who would rule all peoples on the planet and his light would shine into Galilee of the nations, which is where I'm from. That's my zip code. And that's me too. So, like, that's what I would say. But he doesn't say that at all. Um, I think he could make a compelling uh, case for just from those two passages alone that I am the Christ. But instead he says this. Look at this, verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. In other words... He knows the muttering that's going on over here. He's going to speak into it in his response. He says, you know me. You know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And in him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now, again, this is a very strange response when I think you could easily clear up some of the confusion about this. He could refer to scriptures. He could talk about geography. Doesn't talk about any of that. He agrees. You know me. You know where I come from. I'm Jesus. I'm from Nazareth. That's where I grew up. That's part of Galilee. You know these facts about me. But that's all you know. These superficial, surface-level facts. You do not know that I have not come of my own accord. But I was sent by someone. And this is the problem. You don't know him. You don't know that someone who sent me. And let me tell you, there's no one more important in the universe for you to know than him. Period. In fact, I think we can gather from the, testi the testimony of Scripture, everything in your life that you know is irrele irrelevant ultimately, eternally, if you don't know 
him. Because knowing him is tied up with your eternal existence. Whether you know who sent Jesus matters eternally. And of course, he's talking about his father. He's talking about God. Jesus says they know facts about him. They know apparently a good bit about him to make these assessments. They know enough to vet the Christ by certain criteria. They know these things. But Jesus says all of those things are worthless because you don't know God. You don't know God. And if I'm real with you, at this point in my study on this text, I realized what I don't often realize, but I did in this particular instance, that the Spirit was taking me to a direction that I was not expecting or anticipating at all. This isn't where I anticipated to be in this sermon. In fact, I thought we'd get through verse 36. We'd be talking about the exaltation of Christ, which I'm looking forward to, God willing, next week. Uh, But when I read this statement from Jesus, it paralyzed me. And I really like sat down and soaked up that one statement, him you do not know. I couldn't go any further without saying, I got to bring them into this truth. I got to press into it, that there's a way that you can know many things about God, many things about Christ. You can have a theology that is looking for the Messiah based on what you've been taught and actually not even know him, not even know God. That is terrifying to me. Just consider these people in John 7. Put yourself in this story. Look, you're looking at the face of Jesus. He's doing these signs and miracles in Galilee. He's in Judea. He's teaching. You've heard so many things about him. He looks at you and he says, I know you know plenty of facts about me. You know where I'm from. You've done your homework. You have well-developed theology about where you think the Christ should come from. But you don't know God. You don't know him. The one who sent me. The one who sent Christ into the world. This is where the, the, the part of what they believed is actually kind of true. They don't know where he's from. They don't really know where he's from. John clears it up at the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And so... This is a huge deal. The very one who sent Christ is who they don't know. And knowing him is the only thing that matters. I want to deal with that a little bit here. Everything you know in life, every other thing that you hold, all the facts that we hold dear, are ultimately and eternally worthless if we lack knowledge of the one true God. Let me say that again. Everything you know, everything, good, bad, ugly, is ultimately and eternally worthless if you lack the knowledge of the one true God that Jesus is talking about here. And this is precisely what's going on with these people. You can know many things about religion. You can have deep theological convictions about who God is and about the way the world ought to be and And they don't matter at all if you don't actually know him in the way that Jesus is talking here. And so before we we, we brush this off as just a story in the Bible, these people are separated from us by 2,000 years. What does this have to do with me? Before we, we push that off to the side, recognize that the vast majority of human beings on the planet, this statement is true of them. Him you do not know. The majority 
of humanity, the vast majority of humanity. This is Seattle. This is Kingsgate. This is, let's get real, your unbelieving friends and family, people you love, people you work with, people you know. They don't know him. They may have plenty of religious ideas. They may have really well-developed theology about certain things, and they have all their ducks in the row as far as they're concerned, but if they don't know God, they don't know the one thing that will matter forever. And so when I got to this point in John 7, I paused and I said, this is, this is where I feel the Spirit is calling us this week. Because clearly, these people knew of God. They knew of him. They knew that there was a creator and sustainer of the universe. They had ideas about who the Christ might be, who the Christ should be. Um, but Jesus looks them dead in the face and says, him you do not know of his father. So what's going on here? What does Jesus mean when he's saying, <laughs> when he's referring to this, this reality of knowing God? Um, this is not a trivial question like we've been saying. This is the most important question in the universe. So let's read this again. Verse 28. He who sent me is true. And him, that's God, you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus links his own knowing of God with the fact that he has come from God and has been sent by God. That's how he knows God. And we know this from the very beginning of John. Like I just said, Christ was with God from all eternity. He was both God and with God, John explains. The son was with the father. They, they knew each other in a way that you and I could never really understand or comprehend fully, at least not in our current state. And, anyone who knows, and, and if anyone knows God the Father, it is God the Son. But why bring this up right here in the, the conversation? Immediately after telling the crowd, him you do not know, why insert how he, know, how he knows God? Well, it's because the knowledge of God is directly linked and anchored to the knowledge of the one who God sent. And we can see this if we just reflect on the text that we've already read. Verse 16 from last week, where Jesus says, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know, know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So even here, Jesus' point is, is that the knowledge of God, your knowledge of God, in other words, your desire to, to have the will of God, to obey God, is a key to knowing if that man, that 33-year-old Jewish rabbi, is actually speaking on behalf of God. It's if God has done something in me to, to give me desires that are inclined to his will, then I'll know. And that's exactly what he's saying here. The knowledge is... A, a surface level knowledge. To know God is to know Christ. This connection even becomes clear in verse 18 when Jesus says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, that's Jesus talking about his father who sent him, is true and in him there is no falsehood. So think about this for a second. This is the same language Jesus used to describe his father in verse 28. He said, he who sent me is true. And here, he's drawing a connection to them. 
He's saying, I'm true because the Father sent me. So the truthfulness of Jesus corresponds to the truthfulness of his Father. And right here, we are getting to the heart of what it means to know God. Because the truthfulness in verse 18 is linked to one thing that we looked at last week. The pursuit of the glory of God. The truthfulness of anything is in direct correlation to its alignment with the supremacy of God's worth. And Jesus is saying to them, this is the reason you do not know him. Your lack of knowledge isn't simply intellectual. This is something we stumble with all the time. Knowing God is far greater than knowing a series of facts. Certainly, to to know God, you must have some intellectual capacity about who he is, but truly knowing God doesn't stop at, at an intellectual level. It moves beyond intellect into the realm of glory. Into the, into the realm of who God really is. Because as Jesus says here in verse 18, his own truthfulness can only be seen in relationship to his devotion to the glory of God. You know that I'm telling you the truth because you see that I'm dead set on obeying my father and making much of him. And so there's this profound connection between knowing God, the knowledge of God, and the glory of God. They are intrinsically, they are ontologically linked together. To know God, as Jesus says in verse 28, is to know his glory. Not as this thing that floats out there or like a beam of light from heaven. To know the supremacy of his worth, who he really is. So he's saying here, don't, and this might be why he said earlier, don't judge by appearances, judge with right judgment. And there he was focusing on the law, but you really could take that reality and spread it out across the entire text because he's saying here, don't stay on the surface with these intellectual ideas about my geography, where I'm from. Don't do that. Don't stay on the surface about God. Don't play superficial games with the reality of God as though God is some kind of arbitrary concept, like a normal fact that you just plot into your brain, like I own a car, I have a dog at home, these are rocks. That's not God. That's not God. God, the reality of God must be seen in the context of the supremacy of his glory above everything else. This is what it means to know God. This is what it means, and this is why Jesus is looking at them and saying, you don't know him. You don't know him. You can have all these facts in order, but you don't know him. And this is serious. To underscore its seriousness, I want you just to think about this. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. In that text, Paul tells us, describing the return of Christ, that those who do not know God, know God, in the same way that Jesus is talking about this, will suffer, he says, the punishment of eternal destruction. This is why I said earlier, that to know anything else in the world, to know everything else in the world, but to not know God is eternally worthless. Eternally worthless. And it has infinite eternal repercussions. There will be a point in history. It is speeding towards us right now. When God finally withdraws his hand of mercy and he turns away from those who have rejected him. No more opportunity to repent. And as he turns away with him, go from those people, all gladness, 
all joy, all peace, any kind of conceivable goodness leaves. And the reason Paul calls it eternal destruction is because it will never be seen again. Never. So when we talk about knowing God, the way that Jesus is talking about here, it's not a game. This is not, to spend your life in defiance of and in opposition to the objective reality of the glory of God is not a game. There are eternal consequences. We, we say, oh, it was a matter of life or death, or life and death, <clears throat> and to give weight to something. Those are trivial. Life's trivial compared to this. 80, 90 years, that's trivial. Death, trivial. The issue of knowing God extends far beyond life and death. It is a matter of eternal significance eternal significance. So how does one come to know God? Well, to think about this, it's helpful for us to keep John 1.14, which we've returned to. You guys probably know it by heart. You guys probably know it by heart. John 1.14, we've returned to almost every week. Um, and it says this, the word became flesh, that's Christ, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Makes me happy. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we've talked about this before, but I'm going to... So in his dwelling with us, Christ displays glory. And that glory is glory as of the only Son from the Father. In other words, the Son, Christ, is displaying his fa the Father's glory. We see this throughout the, the New Testament. So I was with my son the other day studying uh, Hebrews 1, and it's there... We may look at that next week. But the, one of the best places to, to see this reality clearly is 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where Paul says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness at the beginning of creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says, when you became a Christian, God shined a light into your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in whose face? The face of Jesus. Earlier in that same passage, he refers to it as the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, ultimately, consummately. And so Jesus' dwelling with us is the source of our seeing the Father's glory. That's how we see it, which is ironic and heartbreaking because at the Feast of Booths, which emphasizes this very dwelling that we see in John 1.14, Jesus is looking at these human beings who are celebrating this feast and saying, you don't know him. Even while they are staring him in the face, they're looking at the glory of God incarnate, and yet they are blind to his glory, and therefore they do not know God. So how in the world can these people who are looking at Jesus as he says this, how can they see the glory and know this God? How can people in our lives who, who don't trust Jesus, haven't considered the gospel, who don't really care at all about those things, or maybe do care a great deal, but just don't, don't want them. How do we engage people in our lives who don't know him, the way that Jesus is describing here, to see that glory 
and to know this God. And I mean really know him. Know him like how Jesus is phrasing here, to know the glory of God in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. Well, last week, one of the things that we made very clear was that Jesus did not come. We make this clear every week. He didn't just come to live. He came to die. He came to die. In fact, that is the very hour that he was referring to with his brothers. It's the hour he was referring to to his mother at the very beginning of his ministry in Cana. It's not my hour yet. It's not my hour yet. The time hasn't come for me yet. This is the hour to which his life had always been heading. The cross was always on his mind at some level. And it's the point, the cross, is where Jesus is most clearly pursuing the glory of his Father. It's where his Father's glory is on full display, which is why the word gospel is used by Paul in his uh, explanation of the knowledge of the glory of God. So this hour is where, this time, this moment, this cross is where the glory that God has given Christ, shining through Christ, is on full display. So it should not surprise us that the cross is the crowning moment, the culmination of God showing the world his unsurpassing glory in his son, through his son's death. Jesus even says in John 8, 28, when you've lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. You'll know that I don't speak on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. This lifting up of the Son of Man is the cross, where Jesus says, they'll know, you'll know that I'm him. I'm God's Son. I'm the glory of God incarnate, and I've come. And it's in that moment that they see it. And in knowing that glory, in experiencing the worth of God in the cross, which we'll look at in just a second, they know God. The lifting up of Christ is the point at which God's glory shines like the blazing center of his redemptive work in history. Last week, we looked at John 12, which is really just hours, the night before he's crucified. And he realizes in a moment, he doesn't realize he's always known it, but he, he recognizes verbally with his disciples that it's about to happen. Verse 27 of John 12, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name in my death, in me dying on that tree tomorrow. He's pleading with his father. If one thing happens, if anything happens in all of this, may your name be magnified. What we didn't look at last week was the response that God gives to Jesus in this moment. Listen to this. John writes, after Jesus said this, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It says the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will I, will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The cross. 
is the, the centerpiece of God's glory in Christ's work in redemptive history. And it's the source of the knowledge of God for every man, woman, child on this planet. Seeing the glory of God in the cross of Christ, which is why we treasure the gospel. This is what Jesus is saying here. The lifting up of the Son of Man is the displaying of the supremacy of the glory of God. And here's how it is. You might say, how is it that a naked 33-year-old man pinned to a tree outside of Jerusalem shows anything of God's glory? Like, what does that do? He's been brutalized beyond the point of recognizing who he is, according to Isaiah 53. Doesn't even look human anymore. How does that exalt God? God is glorified in that moment as Jesus pleaded with him to do because he is vindicated. When an infinitely worthy son dies in the place of sinners to pay for how we have all dishonored that glory by defying that God. That's the point of the cross. The cross is the ultimate display of God's glory through his own vindication. Some of you guys are in the men's study. Tim, Timothy told me you just got through uh, Romans 3, where it talks about God put his son forward as a propitiation to our sins so that his righteousness would be upheld. That's exactly what happened here. For how glorious must God be for his own son to have to die in order for all of our wrongs to be made right. How glorious does he have to be? Nothing paints a clearer picture, a more profound, deep picture of the worth and majesty and glory of God than the fact that in order for that glory to be upheld in this sin-saturated world that we live in and call our home, God himself had to die to, to pay for that. That's what Jesus meant. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself because I'm going to show my Father's glory in a way that has never been conceived of on this planet. So please listen to me. There is nothing more important for you personally. I don't know where all of you are, to be perfectly honest. I'd like to say that we're all believers and we all recognize this as firsthand knowledge. This is important for you personally. This is important for our friends and our family members who don't know God. I have people in my mind right now as I say this. There is nothing more important in the world for people to see. There is nothing more important for those in our lives who we love to see than this reality. It is of eternal importance because there is a time in history that is quickly approaching. C.S. Lewis refers to it as coming to us at infinite speed when God will no longer extend his hand of mercy to those who just merely know about him and acknowledge his existence, but have refused to truly know him in the supremacy of his glory. There's coming a time when he will turn away. And the glory of God in the cross of Christ is at the center of human history, literally for a reason. God is making a point. I want you to know me. And the cross is the only place that that can happen. If it, if it wasn't the only place that could, that could happen, if there was another path or religious activity that we could do, there would be no need for the cross. Why send your own son if there's not a, a need for it, a desperate need for it? And so Christ did come. And in his dwelling with us, he made a beeline for the cross in order to show the glory of God. 
And the cross shows the glory of God in two massive ways. One of them is, like I said, the vindication of his own worth. You can't forgive people. If he's as glorious as he is, he can't simply say, bygones be bygones to people who've dishonored him. He needed to vindicate his glory and his worth. But in doing that, he also shows us the most extraordinary love that we could possibly imagine. Because he sends his son to die for his enemies. This is what happened at the cross. This is why the gospel is so precious to us at Risen Hope. Because in the cross, we see the glory of God and the, the precious face of Jesus Christ and we embrace it with all of our gladness and joy. Let's pray. Father God, I feel uh, so inadequate to communicate the stuff that I see in this book every week. And yet I'm grateful that you're with us and you speak into our hearts just as clearly. And I, I plead with you, help us know this. If there are some people here right now or even listening later on, that they would say, I I'm not gonna stop until I know this God the way that Jesus is describing here. I just plead with you that you put it on their hearts. I refuse to stop looking at the glory of the cross until I see him. And I pray that for our, our friends and family members and our coworkers and the many people in our lives who don't know him, who we could say to them, echoing the words of Jesus, him you do not know. I plead with you, help us be a witness. Help the reality of the cross be so real to us in our actions, in our words, in everything we say, everything we think, everything we do, that it's clear that the glory of God shines through the cross of Christ and that we are his ambassador. We are his, his witness. Father, grant that to us, Lord, as we worship be with us in these next few moments. In the name of Jesus, amen.